0: Well, this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to the birth of Christ. Uh, It is truly an exciting time as we spend a few few morning messages looking at uh, the significance of Christ's birth and all the events, everything that led up to that, and so many different aspects regarding what God did and what he sent us, his only begotten son. There is so much that is exciting for us, and I know it's often difficult to to stay on what we need to be excited about the busyness of christmas can often uh, lead us astray and concentrate our thoughts and our focus elsewhere but it's good to have a time where we can focus all on what god has for us Uh, it's easy because um, christmas Based on the way the the world celebrates, even non-believers have embraced this holiday as a day where they can just shower one another with with love and affection and exchange gifts back and forth and there's nothing wrong with doing that but we often miss out even as believers on what the true meaning of Christmas is and the significance behind of it so as we look at a few messages over the course of the next several weeks looking ahead to Christmas i want to draw our attention back to the birth of Christ and we'll start this morning by looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 1 In verses 18 through 25, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles at this time to that passage as we look at the significance of the virgin birth. The significance of the virgin birth. Christmas is so special for us as believers because it is the celebration of why we're able to call ourselves believers. Why we're able to call ourselves children of God Christians, saved, and and any other term that you can coin. uh, We have every reason to celebrate because this is the celebration of the greatest gift that mankind has ever been given. Christmas and Easter are the most significant reasons that the Christian has to rejoice and to celebrate uh, because they both make our salvation complete. They tell us the story, give us the account of what makes everything full and complete for us. Christ needed to first join humanity in order for him to be our sacrificial lamb, offering atonement to all who believe on him. So this morning, we're drawing our attention to the birth of Christ. We're looking at why it's significant, why it is so, uh, so much a reason for us as believers today to rejoice. And specifically, this morning, we're going to look at the manner in which he entered humanity. Throughout history, there have been numerous extraordinary births, especially when we look at God's word. I think about these circumstances when Abraham and Sarah were told that they were going to have a child. God met with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, and in verses 19 to 22, he told him this. He said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee." Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now, reading that passage by itself doesn't seem all that significant, all that extraordinary. uh, But think about what's happening here. God is literally telling Abraham and Sarah, who were past childbearing age, That this time next year, he says they're going to have a son. But what makes it even better is that both Abraham and Sarah, again, shouldn't have been able to have children. I mean, it's significant enough that God intervenes and tells them, you're going to have a child next year. But as we consider the circumstances behind that, as they're old enough, and both of them, Sarah ended up laughing at the thought because she's thinking about herself as as far as how old she is and that it's well past the time for such a thing to ever happen. Now, we know, obviously, that God did indeed give him another son, and his name was Isaac, and God kept his covenant and promise with him. We also read in Judges chapter 13, we read about the angel of the Lord appearing to Manoah and telling him that he and his wife, who his wife was called barren, would also have a special son. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read about the faithful prayer of Hannah, where she pleaded for the Lord to grant her a son, and not long after that, Hannah conceived and bare a son, named him Samuel. We know that Samuel went on to become a prophet, a judge, and one who ended up anointing kings of Israel. As we transition into the New Testament, we read about Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, who was also barren, until God graciously intervened and told her husband Zacharias that she would conceive and bring forth a son also in her late age, who would be the forerunner for the Messiah a man by the name of John the Baptist. But none of these extraordinary births were as amazing as the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior. Despite all of the unbelief surrounding this incredible encounter, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the gospel record is true. Listen to what and how Matthew records it. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, And he called his name Jesus. I love the way that Matthew records it. Because in just one verse, verse 18, we're basically told everything we need to know about what makes the birth of Christ so significant. Why it is a miracle. What makes his birth stand apart from every other birth in human history. And look again what it says in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Luke 1 gives us the detailed event of where the angel Gabriel actually appeared before Mary and explained to her how she was highly favored of God and how she would conceive and bear a son through the power of the Holy Ghost, which Matthew 1 goes on to tell us in verse 20 who would overshadow her, the Holy Ghost. But here, Matthew covers everything in basically one verse. What prophets foretold hundreds of years prior regarding the virgin birth, and that it all happens. It all happens through the Holy Ghost. Now, there are are five specific aspects of the virgin birth that I'd like to call your attention to this morning as we start to look and draw our attention to that little manger in Bethlehem. First of all, notice the announcement. Of the virgin birth. Look again at verse 18, the announcement of the virgin birth. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. The first 17 verses of the book of Matthew are devoted to the human genealogy of Jesus, while in one verse, Matthew is able to cover the divine genealogy of Christ. 17 verses, and I'm not going to read them, but you have them there. Verses 1 through 17 to cover the human genealogy of Christ. Luke 3 gives us another genealogy from the mother's perspective. Here we see the father's perspective, but you're still getting a human genealogy of Christ. And in one verse, in verse number 18, we have the divine genealogy of Christ. It's interesting when you stop and think about it, that 17 verses were used to describe that Christ came from a royal lineage. As he starts out by saying, he says in verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on um, right down into verse, uh, verse 18, all the way down. And, uh, and then one verse, he could have started—I'm sorry— he could have started by saying uh, that this was just the royal lineage of, uh, of, of Jesus, but he tells us so much in just one verse. Uh, the generation of Jesus Christ, he says, the Son of God. Then he could have gone right into verse number 18. Instead of giving us another 16 verses, he could have allowed a single verse to describe his divine lineage as he does, uh, rather his royal lineage as he does his divine lineage. And that's what we're seeing here in such a unique way, that one verse describes the divine lineage of Christ, 17 verses describing the royal lineage. It's interesting because when you're trying to make an argument, when you're trying to, to prove your viewpoint, what you usually do is you'll go through much length, you'll go through much explanation to try and make your case concrete to try and make it as foolproof as possible. This is one of the reasons why we see 17 verses here to start off the book of Matthew, listing all of those who are in the lineage of Christ going all the way back to Abraham. It needed to be clearly established that Jesus is indeed of royal lineage as he was born from the house of David, who is the king of Israel, uh, when God made this covenant. The first 17 verses provide a very clear and accurate description of Jesus' lineage, and it is without error. There's no discussion needed because the evidence points to only one conclusion, and that is that Christ is indeed the heir to the throne of David. Based on the first 17 verses, you would have thought that equal attention, that there'd be another 17 verses to go on to describe Jesus' divine lineage, but there's only one verse— Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then it goes into Joseph, how he was given this information, how he is made aware of what God's plans were. One verse. The reason is that there's not an expansive and detailed and elaborate explanation made to point readers to the divine lineage of Christ is because one wasn't needed. They didn't have to go through a lengthy explanation as to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. It is the same reason why the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God. Not, in the beginning, let me tell you about this God who existed and how he came to exist and how he's all-powerful and almighty and can speak all the things into existence. It just starts, in the beginning, God. We don't get any sort of introduction to this God. No explanation as to how he came to be. All that we're told is that he is there before there was ever anything. And when when Moses was led to write the book of Genesis, he started on the premise that everyone knows that God is and that God always has been. And his simple statement of, in the beginning, God is sufficient. Matthew does the same thing here in verse number 18 of chapter one. He makes a very simple, factual statement which emphasizes full authenticity. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Done. Period. Divine, uh, d- divine uh, announcement. Divine lineage. In contrast, if someone was trying to convince you of something that wasn't true they're going to exaggerate, they're going to embellish, they're going to try to use all sorts of different arguments seeking to convince the reader or the listener of his viewpoint. In Luke 1, Luke 1 26 to 33, we read about the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary where all of this is explained in some detail. We'll look at that next week. The Bible tells us a little about Mary in Luke 1, but what we seem to know even less about Joseph. Based on Luke's account, we know that Mary was faithful, that she was a godly woman, and that she came from a relatively poor family in Galilee. Verse 16 tells us that Joseph was the son of Jacob here in Matthew chapter 1. Later, we find out that Joseph was also a carpenter. We're told in verse 19, That he was a just man. It says then, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, one who placed his faith in the coming Messiah. Joseph and Mary were both pretty young when they were betrothed, which was typical for the culture of that day. The betrothal period in those days was similar to what we might refer to as the engagement period. But in those days, it was even more binding than what we might say when a couple is engaged. You were considered to be married even though you were betrothed or espoused. It was a binding relationship. The society and the culture of the day looked upon those who were betrothed as being legally married even though the formal ceremony and the consummation of the marriage hadn't yet happened and probably wouldn't happen for another year or so. The intended purpose, though, of this betrothal period was for each spouse to really confirm their fidelity to each other while they had little to no social contact with each other during this time. There were no sexual relations between those who were betrothed as they, as they both remained pure for each other until following the actual ceremony when everyone would gather and everyone would celebrate together. And this is why Mary being a virgin was an important indicator of her godliness and her faithfulness to the one she was espoused to, Joseph. And that's why Luke 1 tells us that she was highly favored of God. But there was even greater significance to Mary being a virgin than just protecting her own morality and her own godliness. It would serve as a fulfillment of prophecy. It would give full authority to everything the Bible has to say about the extraordinary birth of Christ. The virgin birth of Christ gives veracity, gives authenticity to everything Christ did and everything that he taught throughout his earthly ministry. His deity is evidenced in all of his miracles and all the teachings. And were it not for a supernatural birth, the miracles and the teachings, they all lose their luster. luster. If Jesus had been born like any other person, there would be no significance to what he accomplished, especially his death. There There would be nothing that was important about it without the virgin birth, he's not God. He's not God. It it seems that we wouldn't have a Savior. Without him being God, we don't have a Savior, a perfect sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. We don't have salvation without him being God, without him being born of a virgin. We don't have the hope of heaven. We don't have any hope at all without him being born of a virgin. It seems like a small little detail in the grand scheme of who jesus is and what he was to accomplish during the time here on earth but in reality everything hinges on this initial miracle of the virgin birth everything falls apart without this being true without the virgin birth jesus is just another ordinary man who lived on this earth who did some good things taught some good lessons but that's it he may have been a great humanitarian But without the virgin birth, he is certainly not God. And in order to keep in line with prophecy, he would have had to have made some false claims about who he is and how he was able to do everything that he did. He would have had to plan some elaborate hoax to pull off the greatest act of all, his death on the cross, burial in the tomb, and then his resurrection from the dead. Even if he was able to pull it off and convince people that it all really happened, that he did indeed die, that he was dead and buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose from the grave, no one would truly be saved if he wasn't indeed born of a virgin. Everyone would remain spiritually dead because they would be placing their faith in the lies of a mere man. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ was indeed born of a virgin and that everything he said, everything he did was done through the power of God to bring salvation to all who come to faith in him. This is why Matthew says such in verse 18 with such simplicity, because Christ's virgin birth was such an accepted and a well-known truth. There was no need to expound on it. And that's why you're seeing so much today. You're seeing scholars and theologians trying to undermine the virgin birth and trying to claim that it, it wasn't actually a virgin, but she was just a young maiden. And that's what the word virgin means. That is a bunch of garbage. That undermines everything that Christianity stands upon. And the Bible makes it crystal clear. Before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. It is undeniable. We have what we'll look at next week further confirms it. Luke chapter 1. She says herself, how can this happen since I know not a man? It is a well-known truth. There's no need to expound on it very simply stated in one verse that she is indeed a virgin. This is the case throughout the rest of the New Testament. Whenever the birth of Christ is mentioned, none of the men who put pen to paper went into any great length to explain how Christ was born of a virgin and why it was necessary. They make a simple statement that this is what happened, and then they move on. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4:4, 4, 4, as he's talking about the relationship between believers and what they have now with Jesus Christ. He says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, he goes on to say that those who come to faith in Christ, uh, those who come to faith in Christ are adopted by God. He quickly, quickly, though, breezes over this little phrase in, in verse number four with no further explanation. He says, made of a woman. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, the Bible says. It may not seem that Paul is saying a whole lot here, but he's really saying more than what we realize. He doesn't say that Christ was made from a man and a woman, but just a woman. No one is made only from a woman without any intervention of man. The simple statement here in Galatians 4, verse 4, is a reference to the virgin birth of Christ describing how that everything Christ was sent to do and be for mankind was done truly by God and by no ordinary man. Galatians 4, 5 tells us why Christ had to be God and couldn't couldn't be accomplishing everything he was gonna accomplish by being just a mere man. It says because God's plan for Christ is is, is very clearly stated. He says to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. God's plan of redemption was only possible through the perfect and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And without the virgin birth, we have some nice guy making some encouraging claims and doing some exciting things, influencing a whole bunch of people, all for nothing. There is no mention of a man in Galatians 4 verse 4 that God sent forth his son made of a man because Christ was born of a virgin. And through his finished work, he brought redemption and adoption, as Galatians 4 5 says, into the family of God through all who come to faith in him because he is indeed God. The reason why God chose these means to send forth his only begotten son was that Jesus might identify closely and personally with those that he came to save. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews 4:15, it also tells us the same truth here. It says, "For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." The Bible over and over tells us that we have Jesus Christ who came as the Son of God and he came the way he did so that he could identify so closely and personally with us here on earth. Jesus may have lived under the roof of Joseph and Mary, but he was always the Son of God. He lived a sinless life, perfectly fulfilled the law of God for all of us, and he offered himself as the perfect and the complete atonement for the sins of the entire world. And it's interesting even though Matthew tells us that Mary, says, was found with child of the Holy Ghost before her and Joseph came together. And Luke 1.35 tells us that the Holy Ghost would come upon her and the power of the highest should overshadow her, making that child that would be born of her the Son of God. We still can't explain it, can we? How many of you can figure out the intricacies as to how God did what he did? Show me your hand. We can't. We can't explain it. We can't explain how God spoke the world into existence. We can't explain how the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the highest and through the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and what was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost. We can't explain it other than to say the Bible says it, so it has to be true. It's as simple as that. Human reason cannot explain Christ's virgin birth. We know the prophet Isaiah foretold it would happen, but this never happens. Where else have you read that a virgin has conceived. God chose not to reveal all the details and all the intricacies of Christ's virgin birth and the miraculous conception the same way he chose not to reveal how he could just speak all things into existence. Did he sit us all down and say, okay, I want to show you just how I did this. See, when I speak, this is what happened. No, it just happened. He spoke. In the beginning, God spoke and the heavens and the earth were created. Honestly, nothing about God makes sense to human reason. How could he be God in three persons? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How is it that he saves sinners who trust in him? What does it look like? What does that process of salvation look like? What made him love a world of wicked sinners so much who wanted nothing to do with him at all? That he would set forth in motion a plan of redeeming mankind Which involved pouring out his eternal wrath for man's sin on his only begotten son. What part of that makes sense? The truth is that there is so much about God that just doesn't make sense for our human reason and our human logic. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. If everything about God made sense, if we could understand the mind of God and all that he was doing and everything that he was thinking, we wouldn't need any faith. But even worse, he would stop being God. If we could understand all that there is to know about God, how he does, all that he does, why he thinks the things that he thinks, he ceases to be God. So the fact that the Bible begins with the very simple statement, in the beginning, God, it's perfect. If we had a lengthy explanation as to how God had his beginning, which he didn't, he always is and always will be what he was doing before time was created. He's no longer God and the rest of the Bible can be thrown out and disregarded. God is infinitely higher than our highest idea of him. And what he has revealed to us in his word is everything we need to know, even if it means we're just just going to have to trust him in faith, that those things which don't make sense to our logic and our own human reasoning make sense to God Because the Bible tells me so. He has declared it so. Secondly, I want you to notice Joseph's response. So we've looked at the announcement of the virgin birth, but notice secondly, Joseph's response. Look at verse number 19. Matthew 1, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, this initial news Of Mary's pregnancy presented Joseph with really two problems. He immediately knew that the promise they had made to each other had now been broken. So he could no longer go along with their original plan since Mary clearly, in his mind, had broken her word. What made matters worse is that Joseph was a a just man, a righteous man. And he genuinely wanted to do things right in the eyes of God. First, he knew he could no longer stay married because she had broken her promise. He knew he was not the father of this child. And based on all that he knew at that time, he had to assume that there was another man that was now involved. And second, Joseph now had to figure out how he was going to deal with Mary. He was a just man, the Bible says in verse number 19. He greatly loved her. So the thought of publicly shaming her was out of the question. Now, public shame for infidelity was a very common practice in those days. It was actually a means of establishing how serious the marriage covenant was. In fact, in Deuteronomy 22 and verses 23 to 25, being unfaithful was actually punishable by death. It says in Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 to 25, it says, if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband and a man find her in the city and lie with her, Then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. This is how seriously God took the marriage covenant. But Joseph loved Mary dearly, that he didn't want this for her thinking that she had been unfaithful, thinking that this is what, according to the law, she deserved. So he was struggling to know what to do. The Bible doesn't tell us that he felt any sort of anger, that he felt any sort of resentment, or even bitterness towards her, but he certainly had shame for what he believed Mary had done. And it wasn't just shame for himself, but shame for Mary as well. Joseph wasn't willing the Bible says, to make her a public example. Therefore, he devised a plan where he could divorce her privately so she wouldn't suffer the disgrace of everyone in the community becoming aware of her sin. The problem with that, though, is that the wedding would eventually be called off. Everyone would know something happened when Mary eventually gave birth to a child. So Joseph's thought was that he was at least saving Mary from being stoned to death. And he was saving and sparing her from a little bit of humiliation. Now, thankfully, the Lord had other intentions and would not allow Joseph's plan to come to fruition. And notice what we read in verse number 20. It says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. This verse confirms what we're told in Luke chapter 1, that Mary conceived this child through the power of the Holy Ghost. Again, what's already mentioned in verse number 18. And thus, he is made known, Joseph is, that there is a supernatural situation that he's presented with. These words would have given Joseph such a relief and comfort. This verse also provides divine assurance to Joseph and to everyone else that Jesus had a legitimate royal lineage that legally came legally came through the line of Joseph who was a descendant of King David. This verse provides one of the most irrefutable testimonies to the essential truth of the virgin birth of Christ and to the proper response Joseph had to Mary's extraordinary situation. Notice third, the angel confirms the virgin birth. The angel confirms the virgin birth. Look at what we see in verse number 21. He says, and she shall bring forth a son. And shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel confirms that Mary indeed is pregnant, but that the child that she shall bring forth has been conceived through the Holy Ghost, and he is to be the Savior of the world. I'm sure when Joseph heard this, he took some time to consider all that had just been revealed to him. This isn't every day that things like this happen. He loved Mary deeply, He, being a just man that he was, as verse 19 tells us. He wanted to spare her from shame and as much humiliation as possible, certainly from death as well. But he was mentally preparing to put her away and divorce her privately. And now this, now he's made known that there's something so supernatural going on, his head is probably spinning. God reveals to him that Mary is part of God's redemptive plan for mankind by which the Messiah will come into the world and sacrificially offer himself upon the cross of Calvary, bringing salvation to all who come to faith in him. This is a lot to deal with. I'm sure Joseph was mentally exhausted when he only thought that Mary had been unfaithful. But now he finds out that Mary's been chosen by God to bring forth the Son of God into this world. I can't even imagine what he's thinking at this moment. At the very least, I'm sure there was a little bit of relief knowing that Mary had not been unfaithful, but that God had intervened. If anyone's allowed to intervene, it's God. The angel confirms the virgin birth. Notice fourth, the prophecy of the virgin birth. The prophecy of the virgin birth. Look at verses 22 to 23. It says, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. While such a thing had never happened before, the idea of the virgin birth was not actually foreign to the Jews. The prophet Isaiah had been led to write these words hundreds of years prior to the birth of Christ, that a virgin shall be with child. And Isaiah seven fourteen says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Even further back, In Genesis 3.15, we're told by God, he says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What is he talking about? He's telling us way long ago that through the seed of the woman, which can only happen through a virgin, God is going to bring forth the Redeemer. In every other pregnancy, the seed belongs to the man. But Mary's pregnancy by the Holy Ghost is the only instance in history where a woman had a seed within her that did not originate from a man. The reference to her seed there in Genesis 3.15 looks past Adam and Eve to Mary to her seed, and her seed would be Jesus Christ. So Matthew 1, 22 and 23 shows us the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah originally spoke these words of prophecy during the reign of wicked king Ahaz at a time when it seemed as if Israel was going to be wiped off the face of the earth at the hands of the Syrians. And even though Ahaz refused to listen to the prophet of God, God's plan was still being declared there in Isaiah's day that God was going to preserve Israel and that the royal line of David would constantly have sown on the throne. This prophecy served as a constant reminder that God was going to still be with Israel. Through his virgin birth, Christ is in every way God with us. And notice fifth, fifth, the last point, the occurrence of the virgin birth. The occurrence of the virgin birth. Everything Matthew tells us about Christ's virgin birth comes through the dream of Joseph. Joseph was engaged in the otherwise ordinary activity of sleeping when most of the revelations that he receives were given to him. Read just the life of Joseph. And you'll see this. He's sleeping every single time. Every single time a vision comes to him, he's sleeping. Never undervalue sleep. Don't ever take it for granted. While Matthew doesn't record any immediate reaction of Joseph, we're told in the last two verses that when Joseph woke up, he immediately did what the angel of the Lord instructed him. Notice what it says in verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him And took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, with all the information that had all just been unloaded onto Joseph, I'm sure there was great relief along with feelings of amazement and gratitude. Because as much as Mary was chosen by God, so was Joseph. Mary was not a single parent in this situation. She had a husband, and a helped me to help raise this child together. So he gladly took Mary as his wife, and I'm sure rejoiced in the opportunity of being allowed to help raise the Son of God. Most likely, the wedding ceremony was, was fast-tracked at this point. It took place shortly after this dream of Joseph. Matthew makes it clear that Mary remained a virgin until she delivered Jesus, implying that no marital relations began until after Jesus was born. We see that Joseph followed through with the angel's command as they went on to name the child Jesus. What's so amazing and significant about the virgin birth of Christ is that it is the only way, the only way to explain the perfect, sinless life Jesus Christ lived while he was here on earth. A skeptic who denied the virgin birth of Christ once asked a Christian, he said, if I told you that a child over there was born without a human father, would you believe me? yes replied the believer if he lived as jesus lived i believe you the virgin birth is significant because it authenticates everything jesus said everything that he did and how he lived that perfect sinless life which we know he lived christ's virgin birth is a supernatural work that will never be done again it is an amazing reality that we should receive with so much joy and gratitude and never take it for granted. Because Christ was born of a virgin, because he went on to accomplish what the Father's will was, to go to the cross, to die upon that cross, bearing all of our sin on his own shoulders, be buried on the third day, rise victoriously from the grave, all of that is possible because of this little, seemingly insignificant miracle of Jesus entering humanity through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord for the virgin birth because without it, we wouldn't be here today. We'd have no hope. We'd have no assurance of heaven. We'd have no joy and no reason to rejoice in the fact that our sins have been forgiven. But because of it, we have everlasting joy as we come to faith in Jesus Christ because he is indeed the Son of God, born of a virgin, Amen. coming to take our sins away and to offer salvation to all who come to him in faith. Let us rejoice in that this morning. Would you bow in prayer as we thank the Lord for the blessing that is indeed his virgin birth. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, thank you beyond what our words can ever express. Lord, that you entered humanity the way that you did. Lord, no other way would have been sufficient. No other way would have shown us, Lord, that you are indeed all that you claim to be. Lord, I know that there's been attempts from long ago to try and discredit the virgin birth, to try and explain it away. Lord, I'm so thankful that even in the days that the Bible was written, it was an understood truth that Jesus was indeed born of a virgin. Lord, just as it is understood that you are indeed God and always will be God and always have been God, in the beginning you are. Lord, I'm thankful that we do not worship a man. Lord, a man that lived, a man that made some great and outstanding claims, but a man that is dead and buried. But I'm thankful that we worship and we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who entered humanity, Lord, through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit as he overshadowed a woman, Lord, and the power of the Most High came upon her. And what was conceived in her was indeed of you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for fulfilling all that you came and and promised to fulfill. Through the prophets of old, Lord, offering us salvation as we come to faith in Jesus Christ. May we rejoice forevermore if we know indeed our Savior, Jesus Christ, as our personal Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.